The scripture today is Psalm 30, 1 through 12. I will extol thee, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust please you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and I, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. For the last few weeks, we've been talking about the Psalms, and I've tried to share with you a way of thinking about the Psalms that a scholar named Walter Brueggemann talks about, which is that there are sort of three types or categories or sort of pockets to put Psalms. One is Psalms of orientation. These are positive, upbeat, uh, optimistic Psalms that just say how great God is and how awesome the world is and how uh, the law is to be followed and can be faithfully followed. But there are other psalms called psalms of disorientation. Those are the psalms when life knocks us on our butts. Those are the psalms for when we are dislocated and we feel like our world is falling apart. Today we are talking about psalms of reorientation or new orientation. These are psalms when you look back on difficult times and you see how God protected you and you came out the other side a different person. Have you ever experienced something that was near death? A car accident you miraculously walk away from, a health scare that was not as bad as you thought it was going to be, or a situation that you would have been in had you gone to a certain event? Or have you ever had good times where you felt especially blessed, where God took care of you, or where something great happened that shifted your perspective? If you've had those moments, and I know you are because you're alive, um, then you have experienced some of this reorientation that happens when life happens to you. You come home and you hold your kids or your grandkids a little closer. You have a little more patience for your spouse, right? Work doesn't look like work the same way after a week. Your perspective changes. And even if it doesn't last, and sometimes it doesn't last, sometimes you're back to the way you were before, but often I'm willing to bet that those things affect you. 
In fact, if I talk to each and every one of you individually about some of the situations in your life that meant the most to you and that shaped you, I would guess that a lot of them weren't real good at the time. A lot of them were not real good at the time. But they ended up shaping you in some way anyway. This is sometimes called liminal space. Liminal space, kind of a a theme in uh, anthropology and also in film and in story. It's the space between what was and what will be. It's that sort of awkwardness in between where you're in, you're trying to adjust to a new world, but you just quite can't get there. It's ambiguous. You're unsure. Time seems to slow down and there's a struggle to find new life. This week is the 4th of July, a date where the United States declared independence from England. And if you read the history, you find out that there was a lot of liminal space in that event, right? There was a whole bunch of really awkward moments and a couple of really awkward years where we were trying to figure out what we were going to do. And then we finally declare our independence and that's the end of it, right? No, then there's a whole bunch of fighting that takes place then eventually there's a whole bunch of fighting that takes place internally so we can figure out who we are. Later, as the union starts to split, there's a whole bunch more fighting in the inside. There's all these different moments that, that we struggle and it, and it slows down and then kind of come up with something new. A nation is born of struggle because there is always pain in new birth. This is true in movies too, right? When you, when, when you watch a movie, every movie starts out with a conflict where a character who felt normal all of a sudden is not normal. And they go their whole movie trying to put normal back, try to put normal back together. And one of the funny things that, that happens in movies is that you typically have something that the character thinks is going to put life back together, but in the end they figure out that they don't need it. If you've ever watched the movie Harry Potter, there's a great example. And if you haven't watched Harry Potter... I'm going to ruin it for you because you ain't watching it. If you haven't watched it by now, you're not going to watch it, okay? But in the last Harry Potter, Harry Potter is doing all this work to get this magic wand that's supposed to be unbeatable. And he finally gets it at the end, and what does he do with it? He breaks it and gives it up. Why? Because he he thought that thing was going to be able to put his life together was all he needed. But what he really needed was the transformation that happened on the journey. Okay, another great example of this is Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones goes and finds the lost Ark of the Covenant. And what happens to the Ark of the Covenant? It ends up in a storage shed, put in a box and put on all these shelves, right? Because he doesn't actually need, he doesn't actually need the Ark of the Covenant. What he needs is the growth that comes out of the journey. That's true in our lives too. Disorientation leads to new orientation. In movies, this is often shown by some kind of scene at the end where they get together and reflect. Or sometimes in movies, they'll show the person later, like a couple years later uh, or much later, and then you see whether they actually live the changes that they learned in the movie or not. Harry Potter does this also, by the way. Because movies are about us watching the change in a character. Of course, when it's us, And when we're not watching it in a movie, we don't always like liminal space the same way, right? We don't always like the conflict and the struggle. We don't always like the suffering and the unknowing 
as we go through life. But there are wonderful psalms for these kind of moments. Psalms for when you're in the pit, but also psalms that reflect when you're past the storm, when you're out of the pit. God has been faithful and the world does work a certain way. It just wasn't the way I thought it was. These psalms often recount the struggle, but normally in general terms, but then returns to praise for all that God had done bringing them through. Psalm 30, which we read here, is one of those psalms. So it is a psalm of lament and disorientation in the middle, but it's a psalm attributed to David that says that he's been through it and God has been faithful. He has a new lease on life because of what he's gone through. So let's walk through the psalm. Verses 1 through 3 begin with praise. He says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. It does not give a specific problem. I think that that's on purpose. You can insert your own problem there, okay? He's looking back and saying, God, you brought me through. You brought me through. What was metaphorically death, you brought me through to new life. Or maybe in David's case, it was really death. It was really the threat of death. David lists four action verbs there. You drew me up. You healed me, you lifted my life, and you restored me to life. And isn't that exactly what we need when we're going through the struggle? How many of you wish God would draw you up or heal you, lift you up or restore you? These are the cries of our hearts in these moments. David describes it. And he describes it with great vigor. You're in a pit. You are with death. You are crying and your foes are crying out and rejoicing and laughing at your demise. Again, we see the Psalms amazing ability to name our problems and our deepest desires. We are fooled into thinking that we're reading the Psalms, but the truth is if we let them, the Psalms actually read us. Verses four through five, David continues to invite the community into praise. For David, God has brought me through and it is not enough that I sing praises. The whole community has got to get involved. So come on, give thanks. Now, I was uh, interested to find something I'd never really thought about. But the Bible says very often, give thanks. Give thanks. And that's a very interesting phrase. Why doesn't it say, be thankful? Or say thanks? The Bible consistently says, give thanks. And the reason is because the word give thanks is actually based in the word for throw in Hebrew. So what it really kind of says is you throw thanks. You don't just give them. You don't just say them. You actually take your thanks and you throw them. You hurl your thanks at God. And part of the Jewish understanding is that you don't just hurl your thanks. You also throw yourself at God. This has a sense of commitment, uh, of, uh, of covenant. That you give not just your thanks, but when you give your thanks, you give yourself to God. See, that's hard to say that you give thanks like that. But, but, but after you've been through the storm, you understand. After you've been through the fire, then you give thanks. Then you give yourself. Thank God. Lord, everything I got is yours because you brought me through that. We give thanks. Why? David says it so beautifully. For his anger is momentary, but his favor is for a lifetime. We don't like the anger of God. Anybody have trouble with that phrase? 
We live in a culture, we do not want God to be angry about anything. Okay, that's not the kind of God that we want. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in the problem of pain. We want not so much a father, but a grandfather in heaven. A God who said, of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter as long as they are contented? Now, I wouldn't have understood that phrase until I had kids and then saw my parents with my kids. Any grandparents out there, you understand this, right? Okay, I take my kids to my parents and I say, my mother let you eat what? My mother let you do what? We never did that. Because grandparents, your job is to what? Spoil. That's right. Okay, and, and what uh, Lewis is saying is so true. We want a God who's a grandparent, not a parent, because parents have to discipline. Okay, we want a God who will sugar us up and send us home. We don't want a God who wants to discipline us. Now, not that grandparents don't discipline either, but I can get around that image. We want a God who is all love and who is all grace, but, but never anger and never disciplining. And that's not the kind of God we have. And by the way, kids that grow up with those kind of parents don't seem to do very well. Okay, you need discipline and you need boundaries. Verses 6, uh, six through 10 David reflects on his trials. And he goes back before. He says, I said in my posterity, I said when I was doing well. See, that's that original orientation. When everything was going well, I said, ah, everything's going to be fine. But then it happened. Whatever happened, insert your problem here. And David was dismayed. And he talks about how he tried to put it together. First he cried. Then he pled for mercy. Then he tried to make an argument. Lord, who will praise you if I go? Will the dust praise you? Come on. He tries to make his argument, but notice even in his argument, there's a humility that David gets to. He starts to compare himself to dust. He starts to be able, not be able to do it on his own, but he starts to humble himself and rely on God. And that's some of the hardest lesson when we go through pain and suffering. To beg, hear, O Lord, be my helper. But he does. And God helps him. And we don't know the specific situation, but we know, verse 11 and 12, he talks about the change to new life. We're not told, by the way, how long the gap is between verse 10 and verse 11. Okay? You don't always get to know. David can put those two sentences right there together about how bad it was and then how good it became. But we know there's a whole bunch of waiting that happens in the meantime. Some of you may have been waiting for years for your answer to the help that you're asking for from God. But David looks back in the rear view mirror and says, no, you were with me. And he has some great phrases for it. You turned my mourning into dancing. I was crying and I was sad and I started dancing. You loosed my sackcloth. Sackcloth was this itchy material people would put on if they were sad and, and it would help them feel sad on the outside so they could get in touch with their feelings on the inside. But David said, you stripped that off of me and you gave me different clothes. You clothed me with gladness. And so David has to respond. He has to give thanks. He can't stay silent. He has to throw his thanks at God. In fact, he can't just do it alone. He's got to go tell everybody else, join in, come sing, give thanks with me. Why? Because he's got to keep the memory of God's saving work alive for the next time he's in the pit. 
See, no matter where you are in the journey, you can read this psalm from your perspective. If you're in the middle of the struggle, let me just encourage you to keep praying, keep believing. God will turn your mourning into dancing. He will strip off your sackcloth and clothe you with gladness. Keep walking. And if you're past the storm, give thanks. Respond with joy. Don't be silent. In fact, there are other people in this room that probably need the encouragement of your faithful testimony. And if you're in the calm, all your storms are behind you, I would batten down the hatches. Because life happens. And another tough time will be around the corner. Count your blessings, rely on God, and get ready. Because life is a cycle of good times, bad times, and putting life back together. Maybe you wish it wasn't like that. I I do. But it is. And I find two things really encouraging and hope-filling in these difficult times. And they're two things that I try to pass along as a pastor. Number one, you got to understand when you go through suffering that we know it is not in God's nature to make us suffer. We know that because of Jesus Christ. It is God's nature to suffer for us. It is not God's nature in Jesus to suffer for us, and it is God's nature in the Holy Spirit to suffer with us. Now, the challenge is, it doesn't feel like that all the time. The challenge is, like David, we can feel like God has hidden his face and abandoned us. But here's the important message. Life is not about how you feel. If it was, you'd be an infant, okay? You don't always feel good. You don't always feel like God's close to you, but it's not about how you feel. Feelings are funny and fickle things. If life was about how you feel, you'd be a baby. Faith and maturity go beyond feelings. God being with you doesn't mean you feel like God is with you. God having your back doesn't mean like you feel like God has your back. There's never a promise of that in the Bible. There's never a promise that you're going to feel like God's close. There's never a promise that you're going to feel like things are okay. There's never a promise that there's going to be an end in sight. There's a promise that God is with you. Ignore the feelings. This, by the way, is a lesson best learned in hindsight. And it's why you need to reflect when you get through the storm and look back. Because when you're in the storm, you can't see it the same way. Number two, I find great hope in the reality that God does not waste the bad things of our life. When storms strike, God uses them as liminal spaces to change us and to change our world. Now, I don't think that totally justifies the pain we go through, okay? I've known people that have suffered and suffered and suffered, and I think they suffered more than the lessons that they learned. And I don't know how to explain that to you. But what I I do find hope in the fact that God does not waste our pain. That when we go through hard times, God says, well, you're going through difficult times and I'm going to be with you. And guess what? I'm going to bring something good out of this if you're going to go through it. I'm going to change you. I'm going to change somebody else. I'm going to change this world. I'm going to bring something good. God does not let us suffer in vain. Though there's never a promise we're always going to know why it happened. But God is in the business of being, bringing life out of death. God is in the very business of resurrection, and he does it not just in Christ, but he does it in your life and my life too. 
Now, much of what I have learned about suffering, I learned from a, a preacher who lived in the 1800s named Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was called the Prince of Preachers, and I like him not just because he was a preacher who had a great beard and loved cigars, but he was also a great pastor, uh, pastored New Park Street Chapel and later the Metropolitan Tabernacle of London for 38 years. Uh, it was the first megachurch. There weren't real good sound systems, but it was designed so that it could seat 5,000 people in London in the 1800s with another 1,000 people who, who had standing room. But Spurgeon had rheumatism, gout, Bright's disease, lost his wife. He was a man who would go through these very, very deep uh, times of depression. Once he had about 4,000 people in that church and somebody yelled out jokingly, fire. And everybody got up and started running and stampeding out and seven people were killed at church that day because somebody yelled fire. And he spent weeks getting over that and weeks just isolated and depressed because of it. And he used to do lectures to his pastoral students. They're today published in a book called Lectures to My Students. I'm sure you've never read Spurgeon's lectures to pastoral students. But there's one essay in there, you can find it online, that I, I would really recommend if you're going through difficult times. It's called The Minister's Fainting Fits. And, and if you, you uh, don't have to be a minister to really get what he's talking about. What, what he talks about is how his pastors... There's easy for us to faint and lose heart. I think for people too. Before a big victory, after a big victory, after a defeat, when we're betrayed, there are all these moments that Spurgeon gives great wisdom to what to do. And let me just read, I don't have time to read the whole thing, but it's a, it's a long chapter, it's a lecture, but let me read a couple lines uh, from the end. They're kind of sporadic, but, but just so you get a little bit of this message to bring this together. Glory be to God for the furnace, the hammer, and the file. Heaven shall be fuller, the fuller of bliss because we have been filled with anguish here below. And earth shall be better tilled because of our training in the school of adversity. The lesson of wisdom is this. Be not dismayed by soul trouble. Count it no strange thing, but a part of ordinary ministerial experience, or I would say life experience. Should the power of depression be more than ordinary, think not that all is over with your usefulness. Live day by day. I, by the hour, put no trust in frames and feelings. Care more for a grain of faith than a ton of excitement. Trust in God alone and lean not on the reeds of human help, be not surprised when friends fail you. It is a failing world. Serve God with all your might while the candle is burning. And then when it goes out for a season, you will have the less to regret. Be content to be nothing, for that is what you are. When your own emptiness is painfully forced upon your consciousness, chide yourself that you ever dreamed of being full except in the Lord. Any simpleton can follow the narrow path in the light. Faith's rare wisdom enables us to march on in the dark with infallible accuracy, since she places her hand in that of her great guide. Between this and heaven, there may be rougher weather yet. 
but it is all provided for by our covenant head. In nothing let us be turned aside from the path which the divine call has urged us to purpose. Come fair or come foul. The pulpit is our watchtower and the ministry our warfare or wherever else God has called you today. Be it ours when we cannot see the face of God to trust under the shadow of his wings. Let us pray. Lord, there are many here going through different seasons, some in really great seasons, some in really difficult seasons, some in seasons of transition. In each time, in each place, help us to get past our feelings and trust in you wholeheartedly that we may, with David, look back and be thankful. Help us to give our thanks, throw our thanks, thrust ourselves upon you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.